Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am our college teaching director at our Anderson campus. I was here last week, but in case you weren't here with me, it's okay, because I was here uh, the last couple years in youth ministry, so I'm still, I've still got the Southwood Street cred. Uh, I've got, I know where the candy jar is, so if you're wondering, you can just come up after the service. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We will be reading 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13, which says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are king, that you are Lord, that we see your glory in the clouds and the heavens, that God, we see your glory in what Jesus Christ did, that you sent him to pay for our sins, God, to raise the dead. God, we thank you for your incredible might, your incredible power. Lord, we just ask that we would keep that power in mind whenever the world becomes scary. God, when we are slandered, God, when we're attacked, Lord, we pray that those attacks and those worries and those stresses that maybe happened this past week or are coming up tomorrow, God, we pray that those things would be away from us right now, that God, you would guard us, that God, instead, you would allow our minds to truly focus in on you, not yesterday, not tomorrow. Lord, I ask personally that you would just destroy anything that I'm bringing, that God, this would not be a message from Jacob, that this would not be my words or my thoughts, that God, you would kill the man that I am, that instead, this message would be entirely from you. Lord, we pray the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians that you would use this foolish preaching to save those who believe. God, to spread your gospel, your good news of Jesus Christ. So God, use this time to accomplish that purpose. We pray this all according to your will. Amen. Well, I'm always excited uh, around this time of year. I'm always excited to get to do the New Year's talk. This is my third year in a row, so it's officially a tradition in the Smith household for me to show up on, you know, whatever, January 4th or 5th or whatever, to speak about the new year. And I'm excited about it because whenever we approach a new year, we always kind of tend to think back and, well, what's what happened last year, right? Or what happened the time before that? And whenever we come to this time of year, I often think back, far, far back, probably further than most of you think, to my first grade year in elementary school. Because in that year, I had this very crucial turning point moment in my life where I showed up, went to class, everyone's excited. It's the last day of school before Christmas break, and we're all hopped up on candy canes and pixie sticks. I don't know. And it was just, we're just all going nuts. And our teacher kind of had to take care of something. So she stepped out of the room. As soon as she stepped out, one of my classmates, a girl named Stacy, just declared to the whole class, Santa is bringing me a new bicycle this year. Just, just told us, just throwing it out there because first graders are just open books. Okay. So she just laid it out. And I personally suddenly felt something stir 
deep within my soul. Because at that point in my life, I did not in fact believe that there was a Santa Claus. Because my older sister was very fond of always telling me, hey, guess what Santa is one letter away from? Satan. I just would say that. Every time that Santa was brought up. And so over that, you know, gradual learning process, I don't want anything to do with that thing, right? So in that moment, as Stacy declared her newfound bicycle that was coming, something stirred and I decided that I needed to do something. And I decided that what I really needed to do, just the most loving gesture I could possibly put out, would be to just crush all of her hopes and dreams So I stood up, looked at her, and told her, Santa is not real. At which point our classroom split. Like it just erupted. And everyone literally physically moved to either side of the classroom, beginning to yell at one another about whether or not Santa was in fact real. Like having these arguments and big PowerPoint presentations and giving out all the lists and statistics. And we're all just yelling back and forth about this and that and this and that. And over the midst of it, it just kind of culminated to this moment where Stacy kind of stepped forward from her side of the classroom and she looked me dead in the eye and said, well, last year, my dad heard Santa on the roof, and he showed me the reindeer tracks in our yard, right? At which point, everyone else in the classroom was like, okay, well, Stacy wins, you know, like that's, her dad said so, so, you know, he wins, it's over. But in that moment, I would not accept defeat. I said, no, no, and I reached deep, deep within And I grabbed a nuclear missile and launched it straight for her core. And I said, well, maybe, maybe seven-year-old first grader Stacy, your dad is a liar. (laughs) Which is exactly what all the first graders said. Because... That was a big one, right? That was a moment that we weren't quite prepared for. That was a moment where everyone just kind of, whoa, whoa, Jacob. And eventually, Stacy's just like, great. She's about to just start pummeling me into believing. Uh, and, but then, thankfully, in that moment, our teacher stepped in, calmed the classroom down, made us all sit down, told us, whatever. It's, it's about Jesus, you fools, you know, or whatever. And so we had us, I went to a private school. And so she just calmed us all down and got it all under control. And the truth is that a lot of times we find ourselves in those arguments. We find ourselves in those conflicts. We found ourselves maybe all of 2013. We're looking at a new year that will be filled with conflicts where we will be standing on opposite sides of the aisle yelling at the other person about sexuality or about marriage or about government or about money or about how these different things are supposed to function. And we're yelling, we're making these presentations and we're telling each other exactly what they should think. And we're going to be in the midst of all these arguments, all these conflicts, And so many times, Christians find themselves at the heart of it. Because Christians will always run into conflict. It's part of just our nature. It's part of what we have lined out for us. Christ told us to expect conflict, to expect persecution. Just what we read from Peter. He says, you will be slandered when you are slandered. It's coming because they know that we are different. They know that if I put my faith in Jesus Christ... If I realize that I am broken beyond repair, if I realize that my only hope is to put my faith in the work of Jesus Christ, who came, was God, came as a man, lived a perfect life, died the death that I deserved, rose again, proving his power over sin, over death, so that I might only believe in him, 
that I might only trust, put my faith in him? When I realized that truth, when I put my faith in Christ and received salvation, forgiveness, and righteousness that will never be taken away, when that happens, I'm part of a new family. I'm adopted. I'm known as an adopted son or daughter of Jesus Christ of God the Father. And when that happens, that means that I'm going to be aligning myself with a new Master, I'm going to be putting myself within a new context. I'm going to be interacting with the world in a different way. This whole past semester in our college services here at Southwood, or with me over at Anderson, we were talking about this big idea of kind of culture. We were talking about all those issues. We were talking about those arguments about uh, sexuality and marriage and, and career and government and, and art and, and all these different pieces that come together, all these different conflicts that we experience. And what we found time and time again is really the only good option for us. The only way that Christians are really called to interact in those moments is we take God's grace, we combine it with God's Bible, and we bring it with God's church. And when we bring those pieces to bear, we present the gospel over and over and over and over again. But every single time I do that, it doesn't always end the conflict. Many times, whenever I present that, whenever I come to someone, I say, well, well, God says this about marriage, or God says this about government, or God says this about the way that you should be raising your children or interacting with your girlfriend. When I bring those things up, oftentimes, especially today, someone will then look me in the face, step forward, and say, well, maybe your Bible is a liar. And many times, as believers, that just knocks us flat, and we don't know what to do. Many times they rattle off statistics, or they say, this person says this, or this person says that. And all of a sudden, I just step back. I'm like, well, maybe you're right. Because many times we are not prepared to defend our scripture. Many times we don't know the truth about our Bible. We don't know what an amazing document it is. We're not prepared to present those things to the world around us. So my goal this morning is for us to just take a moment and spend some time reading or realizing how do we defend our Bible? What are the tools that have been presented to us by brilliant scholars and by God himself? How have they prepared us and equipped us to defend our scripture that we rely upon so heavily in the midst of all this conflict? So we're going to look real quick at just sort of an overview, a brief overview of kind of the attacks that we're going to be facing, a good kind of quick defense against those attacks. We're going to then ask ourselves, well, then why are these attacks happening? And then we're going to zoom right back in and say, okay, well, how are we going to go? What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do about it? So when we look at what are these attacks, what, how are we supposed to be defending our scripture when someone calls into question the accuracy of the scripture or the, the inspiration of scripture, if they say, well, it wasn't written by God, or even if it was, like the Bible that we have now is nothing like what it was back then. Da, 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 da. What do we do in the midst of those moments? And I would tell you the best thing you can do, generally, is to remember puppies, okay? Puppies. They're cute, cuddly, big eyes, waggy tails. Pretty expensive, actually, but puppies, okay? Remember puppies, because puppies is basically my, just the Jacob Smith breakdown of some of our best uh, defenses for the validity, the accuracy, and the inspiration of Scripture. Anytime you're a biblical scholar or just any ancient 
text scholar. You look at two big pieces, two big uh, areas with any text. You look at the internal and the external evidence. So puppies, the first half, you're gonna, we're going to be looking at the internal evidence, just three of many different internal evidences supporting our scripture. We're going to look at then at the last part, which is the external evidence, and which is honestly a very well-rounded, again, just chosen by me. These are what I think are the strongest, resonate well with me. You should look into it. There's lots more. But puppies, personally, I think is really great because it stands for prophecy, unity, power in people, indestructible events and sources. By prophecy, what I mean is that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of detailed prophecies in our Bible. You look within its pages and you see uh, prophecies about kingdoms, about people, uh, about nations, about uh, world events. You see all of these detailed prophecies and none of them have been disproven. None of them. Hundreds and hundreds. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus alone. And while some of those prophecies have yet to be fulfilled, none of them have been disproven. None of them have failed. Hundreds. And that does not happen in any other text anywhere in the world. There is no other text that has that amount of detailed prophecies. Most texts, they generally just kind of stick to really broad stuff like, oh, it's going to be hot someday. Like there's very, very broad statements that you're like, well, that's true yesterday. And so like you, you, you're like, well, it must be right. But the Bible, incredibly detailed, incredibly accurate, yet to be disproven. Incredible internal evidence. It also has incredible unity. Our scripture is amazing. You pick up your Bible, you don't really think about the fact that it is, in fact, 66 different books written across three continents in three languages over the span of about 1,500 years by over 40 different authors. And yet all of those pieces came together to create one book with one message and one theme of a God who sees a broken world that needs redemption and graciously steps in and does so. You see that through all of Scripture with all those variables. That's amazing. There is no other book like that. Any other, even religious texts, they're written by like one guy in a really short amount of time. And there's, so, and even then they have inaccuracies. There's, there's pieces that don't really line up well. Contradictions. The Bible is unified. That's an incredible internal evidence. The last one the power that we see in people is more subjective. It is not necessarily quantifiable, but it is an incredibly, I think, excellent piece, especially in our current culture, where we place so much emphasis on the individual and on the unique experience. You look at the Bible, you see the lives that it has changed. Many of us are probably sitting here right now because of a verse that someone told us or, or a story that we heard there's incredible power and authority in Scripture that you don't find in other texts. An incredible internal evidence for the accuracy, for the authority, for the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture is also indestructible. What I mean by that is it was written, right? We've, we've had our Bible for around, two, as we know it, for close going on 2,000 years. And over that span of time, it's been attacked and sought to be destroyed more than any other text ever. The claims that it makes in its pages to be the written word of God and the things it says about the world and about people, about God, 
People hate that. And rulers and nations and people, huge groups all throughout history have always been trying to destroy the Bible, and yet it has never been destroyed. There have been so many books, so many texts lost throughout time. But the Bible has maintained because there is a God who is directing it, a God who's protecting it. Even in the early church when you had just a few hundred and then maybe just a few thousand people having those scrolls, those pieces, it was maintained, it was protected by God. It's amazing. There are also events, meaning external evidence. You look out and you see the Bible making all these claims about this kingdom or that king or or this battle or these things. And they say, well, this guy died here and this kingdom fell at that time or this city was located next to this river. And anytime the Bible makes those claims, many secular researchers and scholars and archaeologists will say, oh my gosh, here we go. Here's our chance. Right? The Bible just, it just opens, opened itself up for attack. And so they rush to that place and they say, no, 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 we're not going to find that city. That city is totally not here. It was totally over. Uh, it's, uh, it's here. Right? And they say, blast it. Or I don't know. I don't know what researchers say. But something. <laughs> Ooh, no. Right? And they find these things over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, they have tried to disprove Scripture because that works with a lot of other texts. A lot of other texts, they say, well, this happened or that happened. Uh, we have... You know, the Book of Mormon has these claims about all these different civilizations, these things that have happened. There's no archaeological evidence to support that. But our Bible makes all these claims, talks about all these different people, puts out all these lineages and all these histories, and they all line up every single time. It's an incredible evidence for the validity of our Scripture. And probably my most favorite external evidence is, in fact, the number of sources that we have for our Bible, meaning the number of manuscripts, the number of copies. Uh, anytime you're an ancient textual scholar, okay, so for the none of you that are going into that field, you have before you a great, uh, just a huge uh, mass of of books and, and scrolls and pieces of paper and all that stuff. And people are constantly trying to catalog them and go through these ancient texts and trying to decipher what they say. And so slowly but surely, everyone's kind of trying to catalog and kind of say, okay, well, this comes from this book and this comes from that book. And so it's given us basically uh, the evidence for different historical figures like Plato or Aristotle, uh, Socrates, right? We slowly but surely kind of find their writings. And so what I have here is just a chart that there's a version of it actually in our essentials packet, one of our studies we do here at Grace. But it kind of breaks down kind of what kind of textual evidence do we have? What, what's the textual basis for these different people we know? So Plato is a commonly known uh, ancient philosopher who the first column tells us he wrote his stuff in around 427, 347 BC. But the next column tells us that, well, in fact, the earliest dated writing we have the earliest copy of something that he said is actually dated about 900 AD. And so since none of us like math, we, the next column just tells us, okay, that's about 1,200 years. We're like, okay, cool. Thanks, column four. And so that tells us, okay, so we've got about 1,200 years span between when, he, when we think he said it and what the earliest copy actually is of what he said. And then the last one tells us, okay, well, how many copies of that do we have? We've about seven, okay? But Plato is someone that we know, we respect scholars. They're like, well, yeah, Plato and... He was a guy, right? And you go down the list, there's a bunch of other dudes that I guess existed that none of us know. Uh, but, you know, Caesar, you know him, Texas, or Aristotle. And so you see these different people, and you see, again, just sort of when they said it, uh, earliest copy, the distance, how many copies. Iliad is one of the most well-documented historical texts, uh, second most. Uh, it's 
amazing. It was written in 900, only separated by 500 years, 500, 643 copies, 95% accurate lining up. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but then you probably noticed, spoiler alert, the bottom row, which is our New Testament. That was written, as we know, about first century, right? It was written within a generation of Christ actually being on the earth. And so we have our earliest copy. This is actually a little bit outdated. This tells us that our earliest copy is second century a fragment. Uh, but in fact, this past year, 2013, uh, a really smart guy up in Dallas, at Dallas Theological Seminary, a guy named Dan Wallace, uh, in fact, discovered a fragment from Mark that was dated to the first century. So... Column four says less than 100 years. It's actually probably about less than 50 at this point, which is insane because we also have, again, this is a little outdated, but we have over 5,600 copies, 5,600 fragments, manuscripts. Um, they're called witnesses, 5,600. Next closest, 543. One that we very much respect at the top, seven. 5,600. New Testament. That's amazing. This is incredible. And this does not happen with any other text ever. This is, this is it. The next closest is the Iliad. So when we see this, when we realize just the hard statistical evidence supporting the accuracy of our Bible, how can that not strengthen our defense? But the sad thing is that a lot of times we take this knowledge and we hear this, right? And maybe I just gave this to you. Maybe this is good. Maybe if you haven't faced someone that's attacked the validity of Scripture, I promise you, you will. So maybe you've got this. You, got, you took the note and you go, okay, got it, right? And a lot of times we grab it and we're like, all right, I can't wait to go use these arrows of tough love, truth thing, you know, whatever. Like we just can't wait to go and just shoot them off at those people in our office or in our school or whatever. But the truth is that we use this stuff and we can, I could say this all day. We could go to a whole lecture all about how we can trust the Bible, the inspiration and authority of our scripture. But the reality is that that doesn't necessarily change lives. In fact, I would say most of the time it doesn't do anything. I had a discussion with a seminary professor who was uh, working out at like a high academic institute, big college brilliant people talking with students, with uh, faculty, and he would talk to them about the Bible and about what they believed, what he believed, and they would kind of share with one another. And he would often give, get into these big discussions about, you know, can we trust the Bible? What does it really say? How do we know? And he said he did this for years, years. And he would have these long conversations for hours that would span days. They'd meet up again weeks, months later. And he said it took him a few years to realize that there was one really crucial question that he needed to ask within the first 30 minutes of every conversation, which was as soon as he started talking to people again, years into his ministry, he would talk to me and say, well, let's just stop for a moment. I'm just going to ask you, if I answered every question you have, if I put to rest every concern that you hold, would you then believe if, I assure, if you completely trust me 100% that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God that was written 2,000 years ago, if you truly got that, if I truly convinced you of that, would you then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? He said 95% of the time, the person would say no. They'd say no. At which point he would say and realize, well, then this isn't an argument about authenticity. This isn't an argument about accuracy. 
It's not. And the conflicts that we're walking into when people attack our Bible, it's not because they don't trust the authenticity of our Scripture. Behind any conflict, there's always a bigger question. Within our large national conflicts, world conflicts, there's always actually one really big central question that's behind, I'd say, any conflict, which is, who is the Puba? Okay, this is a term that we've used in college this past semester. I will explain it. Don't worry. So Puba, weird term. Some friends and I discovered it in high school. I was used in the 1800s in this like old opera thing. And this guy uh, used the term Puba to mean Lord High of Everything. And so we were high schoolers and so thought the word sounded funny and we were dumb. And so we took the word and then applied it to one of our youth leaders and used it as his nickname for like two and a half years. We, just, we would only call him Puba. And so anytime we would gather together, you know, and be hanging out or whatever, and there would be a conflict, we would actually, in fact, use his nickname to his advantage. And whenever we would, you know, conflict about, like, who should talk or what's going on, he would say something. We'd be like, well, all right. Hey, you're the pooba. Yeah, you're the pooba. You got it. You got it, pooba, right? And so we would just roll over and say, we admit it. Okay, fine. You're the Lord High of everything. And then, in fact, that is our number one conflict. When we go out into our world, we see uh, the New Year's Eve, the Aggies are facing off against Duke. It's not about, like, who wants it more, right? Or, like, who has the best program? Instead, what it really comes down to, any conflict, any sporting events, about who is the pooba? Who is, in fact, over this? Who is, in fact, the lord of this game, right? Who is the first half pooba, which is the duke, but who's the second half pooba? A&M, right? So we have that conflict rooted at the heart of everything. It's really that one question. And so whenever we're looking out into our culture, we're seeing an incredible conflict between believers and non-believers because a believer who's aligning himself with the word of God, with God's truth, with his Bible, with his community— if I'm asked the question, who's the pooba, I'm going to answer God. God is. God is Lord most high of everything. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But you look at our culture, you look at a non-believer, and when you ask him, who's the pooba, they will tell you immediately, I am. Me. I'm the pooba. See, our culture claims to love toleration. Our culture claims to just love relativism, that there's no absolute truth. We love toleration, meaning everyone can do anything, whatever. But the reality is in the midst of this culture where people are claiming that there are no lines, they are in fact drawing them all the time. This past year, we had a uh, court case pop up out in California where this kid, and a kid in elementary school, he's like a second grader, uh, wanted to, was using uh, the girl's restroom, but he was in fact a boy. But he identified with the female gender. His parents decided, yeah, well, of course, you know, that's your decision. You can identify with whatever gender you want. And so he was using the girl's bathroom and the school of officials said, well, hey, let's not allow that. They, they decided to stop it. They said, no, you, you can't do that because they saw future problems arising from that situation. They said, no, let's just, let's just stop it right here. And so the parents sued the school. The parents said, how dare you limit our child? Our child can choose whatever gender he or she chooses to be. And they sued the school and they won. The judge said, yeah, how dare you try to box in that child? How dare you try to draw those lines and make them fit to your gender norms? How dare you? Because we tolerate. Everything's relative. But you look across at 2013, 
You also see the gradual and occasionally dramatic decline of America's sweetheart, Miley Cyrus, right? You look out and you see it just across the year. You see this transition, this change where people got up in arms. Christians, non-Christians, very secular news organizations or people or commenters or whatever had these big debates and all this stuff about, well, she made this performance or she wore this thing or she danced that way. And there was Facebook was just filled up with all the posts about dads, don't let your daughter be Miley and daughters, don't let your dads be Billy Ray. And like just all this big thing. And it just erupted and everyone was going nuts and everyone had an opinion. They were also making these dances. And what it really came down to is you had all these secular organizations saying she crossed a line. You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't act that way on national television. She crossed a line when they just said there are no lines because toleration doesn't function that way, and our culture doesn't care. Our culture doesn't really care about toleration. Our culture just wants to be the puba. What our culture is telling us, basically, in relativism and toleration, makes no sense because they basically say, I forbid you to forbid him. And that makes no sense. But they don't care because it's not really about truth, it's not really about rights. It's about who's the puba. The truth is that I don't want you to tell your kid what gender they should be because I don't want you to. Not because there's some rule. You can't, you can't vote for that thing or you can't vote for that institution or for that people group because I don't want you to. You can't believe that thing or do this thing or you can't make marriage this sort of institution because I don't want you to. And in the midst of all of that self-entitled poobas, When a Christian walks in and says, well, the Bible tells me this, or this ultimate truth from the Lord says this, that's why they turn to us and they say, well, maybe your Bible's a liar. Not because they don't trust the accuracy or the uh, inspiration of our scripture. They don't care about the accuracy. They just don't trust the author. They don't trust the author of our scripture because they don't want anyone to be Lord over them. So in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of that breakdown, we should still prepare ourselves to defend the accuracy. We should still know puppies, right? We should know those. Those things are good to know, but they should not be our focus. Our goal should not be to argue someone into the faith. Our goal should not just be to defend our Bible. It should be to defend our Bible's author, And what we saw in 1 Peter is exactly what to do. That's why we read these words. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter's telling us, you know what the best defense you have for God's authority? Best defense you have is a regular demonstration of that authority in your life. 
your best defense for God's authority in our culture is a defense, as a demonstration of God's authority in your life. To live it. To honor Christ in your heart as holy. But doing it all with gentleness and respect. And we see this throughout Scripture. It's not just Peter. We see John telling us. In 1 John 2, it says, By this we know we've come to know him. This is how we can be confident. If we keep his commandments, obedience. Christ himself said, they will know, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus says in John 13, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Repeatedly we see this one-two punch of obedience and love. Not as a means of obtaining salvation, not as a means of proving my salvation, but merely as a way of demonstrating God's authority in my life to declare to the world around me that God is in fact Puba. It's not you and it's not me. It's God. And when I demonstrate that obedience, when I demonstrate that love, people see it and they realize that we're right. God is Lord. They'll see it. This is why back in the second century, early Christians were facing basically the exact same situation as we are now. It's hilarious. History is nuts. And so they have basically the second century Christians, they're in a culture that did not understand them. Right? There was a lot of misunderstanding about what Christianity was, what they believed, who Christians really were. And so because of that, there were very weird uh, allegations against them, like cannibalism and uh, murder and incest and like all this really weird, dark stuff. And in the midst of all of that, they were kind of okay with it, but kind of not, because that culture, the ancient Rome at the time, was very, very built, very much built on toleration, on relativism. They had this rule that when they conquered your people, uh, you could basically do whatever you want. You could worship whatever gods you want, uh, do just whatever, as long as you paid your taxes and as long as you worshiped Caesar as one of your gods. Okay, that was their only rule. Anything else goes. So in the midst of that situation, honestly, the midst of that culture that we're basically in now, we had people rise up and speak incredible truth and write incredible letters and put out incredible just defenses for the faith and stating, just kind of states of the union about like, what do Christians really believe? We had these early apologists rise up. One of my favorites is a guy named Athenagoras who rose up second century and wrote an open letter to the emperor called A Plea for the Christians, where he merely just wanted to define what are Christians? What do they really believe? And then why is everyone attacking them? He gives a defense for them. It's called A Plea or a Defense for the Christians. Open letter to the emperor. I don't know if the emperor ever wrote it or ever read it, but lots of other people did. And so in it, it's kind of long, but I've just got a few quotes from it. He gives this brilliant, brilliant defense in the second century, about two, almost 2,000 years ago, he says, what then are those teachings in which we are brought up? And then he quotes scripture. He says, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that persecute you, that ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. He says, who of those other religions have so purged their souls as instead of hating their enemies to love them, Instead of speaking ill of those who have reviled them, to bless them? To pray for those who plot against their lives? It says, but among us, you will find uneducated persons, artisans, old women, who if they are unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds exhibit the benefit arising from the persuasion of its truth, 
They do not rehearse speeches, but they exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to the law. They give to those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. Athenagoras put forth one of, I think, the best defenses for Christianity, giving us one of the best just kind of points on the horizon to aim for, that if I really want to prove my faith, if I really want people to trust what I trust, if I really want people to believe what I believe, if I really want people to pick up on the fact that Jesus Christ is the answer to sin and to death, if I want people to realize that, I can rehearse speeches all I want, but my deeds are so much louder. Speeches are good, words are important, but my deeds. Because as soon as people see that life that is different, they'll notice, perks their ears, perks their attention. The reality is that all of us are going to be hypocrites, right? Every single Christian is a hypocrite. That is going to happen without fail. We are still broken people. We are not fully glorified. We have sin and death just infected in ourselves. But we are not only hypocrites. We're children of grace. All of us have a God who picked us up and turned us around, who gives us the ability to obey. Obedience is always, always our goal, not to obtain or prove our salvation, but to demonstrate God's authority in our lives to the world around us. A way to defend God's authority in our culture. And through all of it, we use that gentleness, that respect. So as this new year is coming upon us, as we are fast approaching this brand new 2014 horizon, we often ask ourselves really tough questions, right? We often ask ourselves, well, you know, how much weight do I really need to lose this year, right? Or like, how many books do I really want my kids to read that don't have too many pictures in them, right? Or like, what do I really want to do with that Bowflex in my garage? You know, am I, am I really? Well, I don't know. Like, you know, we ask ourselves those tough questions. And so my challenge to you is that as we're approaching this year, to not only ask yourselves those things, but ask yourself two more questions. To ask yourself, where do you need a stronger defense? Where have you been failing to demonstrate God's authority? Where have you bought into the lies of our culture that there are no lines? We've just kind of erased it. Where have you done that in your workplace? The way you handle your money, the way that you handle your family, the way that you interact with strangers. Where could your defense be stronger? Where could you demonstrate God's love and grace, gentleness and respect? Where could that be better? And ask yourself a second question, that if you really believe that the Bible is God's word, if you truly believe that it is the inspired words of the Lord, do you treat it as such? Do you read it? Are you spending time in community reading it? Are you in a small group? Do you read it on your own? Do you spend time memorizing portions of it? Because if we really want to claim that this Bible is in fact words spoken by the Lord God who created all things... If I claim that, my gosh, if I truly believe that, I should be reading it, studying it. So are you? Do you need a plan for 2014 to be in a small group to read? Do you need a plan on your own of a, a time to read or, or a reading plan you can download from the internet? Do you need something to get you on that track? Because this new year is upon us. And conflict is on the horizon. So we need to be prepared 
to defend our God by demonstrating obedience. So let's pray. Lord, again, I just thank you for this time to come and listen to your words, God, to study your words, God, to hear your truth. God, we thank you that you have placed us in a, in a position where we have the opportunity to just step away. Maybe even for the past few weeks, we were on vacation. We took a break from our jobs or from our school, our classes. God, we thank you that we've had this time of rest. But Lord, we pray that we would hit the ground running for this next year. That God, that this would be the year that we live entirely for you. If you would take a moment and just ask yourself, those questions. Ask yourself, where do you need a stronger defense? Where have you tried to erase the absolute lines that God has drawn? Where does your life not reflect that obedience, that love, that gentleness that Christ calls us to? Ask the Lord to reveal to you where it is and ask him to move in your life to prepare you, to, to empower you through his spirit to change. Ask him that right now. And if you would take a moment and just ask the Lord to show you where you can be reading your Bible. Ask him to give you a time or a place or a small group. Ask the Lord to reveal to you maybe a plan to really seek him and seek his truth in his scripture. Ask him to show that to you and again to empower you to change, to move into that small group, to go to have that quiet time. Ask him for that now. God, we, we thank you that we are only able to love because you first loved us. So Lord, please remind us of that truth. God, pour out your love and your grace on us that we so desperately need so that we might turn around and share that grace, that love, that forgiveness with those around us. Pray this all according to your will. Amen. All right, well, we hope you guys have a wonderful beginning to 2014. See you in a week.